Hey, if you have your Bibles, turn to Habakkuk. How many didn't even know there was a there was a book in the Bible by the name of Habakkuk? Habakkuk. Well, now you do. Don't hesitate. Take a look at that table of contents to find your way there. What we typically like to do around here is that we spend some time uh, in book studies, a considerable amount of time in book studies. We'll go and do topical studies from time to time, but we like to do a lot of book studies. We'll do them in the New Testament, and we do not shy away from the Old Testament. This is our Old Testament study through the book of Habakkuk. We're going to spend the next five weeks looking at these three chapters. And the title of this weekend's message is Trusting in Troubled Times. We're going to look at Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Why is God silent? Why is God silent? A number of years ago, um, I heard this statement. It has stayed with me. And I think about it from time to time, but it was uh, by Pastor Chuck Smith, uh, founder of the Calvary Chapels. And he said this. He said, if I do well when all is well, that says nothing to the world around me. But if I do well when all else is falling and failing... Then indeed is my life a witness to the world. I like that. I, I, I agree with that. In fact, I'm convinced that, that the true test of the Christian life is not found in the, the good times. We can all celebrate good times, but it's in the bad, bad times. It's when all else is falling and failing. Can you still trust God? That, that's the big question. That's the big storyline of Habakkuk. And uh, I think that I need to uh, start off by just leveling with you about something. And you guys know this. Um, I, I'm not a prophet of doom, but I'm a realist. And I believe that we're headed for some troubled times. You're headed for some troubled times. We're all headed for troubled times, for bad times. Are you ready? Are you ready for troubled times? Because it's actually inevitable. And I, and I base that on a number of things. One is the fact that we live in a fallen world, second law of thermodynamics. Guess what? You're going to die. And I'm going to die. And those closest to you are going to die. You're going to bury them. They're going to bury you. One or the other. That's a fact. That's troubling. It's something that we don't often think about until it, it's right in our face. And yet that's a reality of life. That's pretty troubling. That can be very troubling. Especially if it comes unexpectedly. And some of you have faced that. Have faced the loss of a loved one unexpectedly. Not only do we need to be ready for troubled times and difficult times and bad times because it's inevitable. But also just looking at this recent earthquake tsunami in Japan. Did you know that the Bible calls those birth pains? How many know what birth pains are? I mean, besides the birth pains of a mom with a baby, we're talking biblically speaking here. What's interesting about this is that the Bible has this genre of literature. It's called apocalyptic or eschatology, and it speaks of end times. It has a considerable amount to say about end times. We studied it back when we worked through the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13. You can still download it online. But we worked through a number of the, this checklist of items that would, in, in a sense, be birth pains that would increase in intensity and in frequency. And that's exactly what we're seeing happening on this planet Earth. Geologists say that they are seeing an increase in frequency, uh, frequency and intensity of these earthquakes. And so we have an example of that in Japan. And just, you don't have to go too far back. We're seeing these earthquakes and these tsunamis and all of these things. And there's a number of other things on that list. And so the Bible tells us that we're headed towards the end. It's called eschatology, end times. But besides the fact that we live in a fallen world and we're headed towards the end, this whole clock is winding down based on what the Bible says. But if you, have you looked at the trajectory of American society lately? I mean, when you look at, you know, our society and where we're headed, let me ask you this. Are we, is our economics, economically, are we good or bad? Very bad, yeah. In fact, what's interesting is that my parents, I thought that they did really a good job at trying to set uh, me, you know, my sibling, my uh, two sisters and I up for success. And I think that we actually probably did a little better. We were a little bit more successful financially and all that. But it's not true with my kids. It's already cycled back around. Just one generation. One generation. My kids are struggling economically because of what's going on. And not only that, we know this. I mean, just look around. 
National debt is out of control. If you don't think that that has an impact on our lives personally and corporately and nationally, it does. It is not good. It's, it's very bad. And then you look at the trajectory of our American society as it relates relationally. Are we getting any closer, getting any better with this thing called relationships and marriages and parenting and all these things? Is it good or bad? It's actually very bad. In fact, in spite of the technological advances, Internet, cell phones, Facebook, all of that, uh, we're, we're actually, experts are saying we're pretty superficial in our relationships. We're getting more and more superficial in spite of that. And oh, by the way, you need to know this, that uh, Facebook friends aren't real friends, okay? You, you, you knew that, didn't you? And just because someone Twitters you kind of back and forth once in a while, you, they're not like your bosom buddies, Okay. Uh, not based on what the Bible talks about friendship and what we really need for our lives. So the trajectory of our society, American society, economically, relationally, how about spiritually, good or bad? Yeah, bad. It's, it's, somebody said horrible, yeah. It's actually horrible. We've never been more cold spiritually. And we see more and more of a moralistic therapeutic deism being proclaimed in many churches these days. And then let me ask you this. Do I need to even say homeland security? We've never been more vulnerable, vulnerable to terrorist attack. We are headed for troubled times. We are headed for troubled times. Are you ready? Are you ready for troubled times? Whether it be personal, individual, or within your family, or whether it be national, the Bible says that we need to be ready for troubled times. Many in our fellowship have or are experiencing their own troubled times, their own earthquake tsunami. And if you haven't, you will so the question is, how do you trust in troubled times? If I do well when all is well, that says nothing to the world around me. But if I do well when all else is falling and failing, then indeed is my life a witness to the world. Jesus made it very clear to his disciples before he departed. It's found in the 16th chapter, 33rd verse of John. He says, in this world, you will have trauma. You will have troubles. You will have tribulation. But he doesn't stop there. He says, but take heart. Take heart, I have overcome the world. If you keep your eyes on me, if you let me in the place of steering your life, if you focus on me, you're going to have the power, you're going to have my presence, you will have my peace, you will have what you need to navigate through those troubled times. I'm convinced of that. I've seen it in my life, I've seen it in many other lives. I see it currently in people's lives here at Desert Breeze that are going through troubling times. They're experiencing their own earthquake tsunami. And so that's where we're headed with this study. It's a, it's a fabulous study through the book of Habakkuk. He's going to teach us how to trust in troubled times. So what I'd like to do is begin with a word of prayer, then we'll dive into our text, and then we'll unpack our study this morning. But I'd like to ask, first of all, just take a few moments. How many here are struggling in their own life with their own maybe earthquake difficulties, problems? You'd like to have prayer this morning. Just show of hands. Show of hands. Show of hands. Yep. Yep. Quite a number of people here. God sees your hands. God sees every hand. He knows your heart. He is here this morning to meet with you. And so I would like to pray for you, but I'd also like to uh, pray for the people in Japan. And would you bow your heads with me? Let's take a moment. And spend some time once again before the throne of grace. Father in heaven, you are perfect in love, infinite in wisdom, and completely sovereign. You are sovereign over the shaking of this earth and the raging of its waters. We tremble at your power and we bow down to your unsearchable wisdom and find comfort and courage in your amazing love for us. Father, as many of us watched the tragedy in Japan, we were reminded that in a moment, any one of us could be swept away. We are not more deserving of firm ground than our fellow men, women, boys, and girls in Japan. If we were treated according to our sins, none of us could stand. So we humble ourselves under your holy majesty and we repent. God, you have said that whoever calls upon the name of your son Jesus will be saved. So we call upon his name. We pray that through this tragedy, all of Japan will call upon your name. May every heart-breaking loss, both in Japan and also the troubles, the trials, the trauma of those that raise their hand, may every heart-breaking loss, both there and here, 
or even those that are listening online, be healed by the wounded hands of the risen Christ who sympathizes with our troubles because he tasted loss on the cross for all of mankind. Teach us through this study in Habakkuk that you can turn darkness into light. And though there is weeping at night, joy comes in the morning. And behind every frowning providence is your smiling face. Help us to see more clearly your smiling face this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Let me read through our text here. Uh, just before I do that, you can see there on your, on your notes, part of the intro, Habakkuk comes from a Hebrew word that means to embrace. And so in this study, in his book, he comes to grips with some serious problems and lays hold of God by faith when everything in his life seems to be falling apart. The key verse is found, actually we'll, we'll get it, we'll, we'll look at that key verse next week, but it's Habakkuk 2.4. And you actually see this statement, very profound statement, you see it three other times in the New Testament, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. That's actually the key to the whole book and the key to the Christian life in really understanding the righteous will live by faith. Let me begin reading. I'm going to read the whole first chapter here. Starting at chapter 1, verse 1, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and injustice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. So we have Habakkuk's complaint, and now we get to the Lord's response, to God's response. So really, when you look at the layout of the book, it starts Habakkuk's complaint. God responds. Habakkuk complains. God responds. Habakkuk trusts God. That's kind of the flow. So here's God's response. Look among the nations and see wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen... Come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence. All their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. All kind, all kings, at kings they scoff. And at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress. For they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. That was God's response to, to Habakkuk. Pretty heavy. Now here's Habakkuk's second complaint. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O God, have established them for reproof. You who are pure, who have who are of pure eyes than than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them, he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? This is the word of the Lord. So we're going to look at three things here. Habakkuk's first complaint, God's response, and then Habakkuk's second complaint. 
Habakkuk's first complaint, verses 1 through 4, is what it teaches us. God's silence gives us the illusion that he doesn't hear, that he doesn't hear. Look at verse 2 once again. How long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Quick survey here, show of hands. How many have ever felt that that you were talking to the wall and your prayer wasn't getting any higher than the ceiling? Show of hands. Ever feel like that? Yeah, too often I have felt like that. And what often keeps us from prayer is unbelief because we don't really believe that God is there, that he hears us. The more we get into the reality that he does hear, he does care, the more we will pray. But our prayerlessness is based on our, on our unbelief, really. It's just unbelief. Because I'll tell you what, if you understood what God thinks feels and wants to respond to you nothing would keep you from prayer but but we all struggle with that so we need to be we need to face the reality of that that's what he's talking about here how many have ever experienced this before that others pray get immediate answers and you pray and you get nothing but a busy signal or voicemail i mean it's like come on god where are you in this you look at others and they just well they talk about one blessing after another and you're thinking you can't even remember the last time that you got any kind of a response whatsoever from god show of hands yeah that's habakkuk That's Habakkuk. That's what he's saying. He doesn't hear. God's silence gives us the illusion that he doesn't hear. Here's the next one. God's silence gives us the illusion that he is unfair. Verse 2. He says, or cry to you, violence, and you will not say. Violence basically means that's unfair. That's unjust. And you don't do anything about that? I mean, maybe you can relate to a scenario similar to this. I have a strong work ethic. I'm honest. I seek to live my life for God's glory. And the guy in the office across the hallway is lazy, has no integrity. Life is all about him. He gets promoted. Now he's my boss. Unfair. Unjust. Here's another one. My drug addict neighbor is popping out illegitimate kids left and right, selling her body for drugs. And my spouse and I have desperately prayed to get pregnant for years, spending thousands on fertility doctors for what? Nothing. Unfair. Unjust. That's what Habakkuk is saying. God's silence gives us the illusion that he doesn't hear. He is unfair. And then here's the next thought. He doesn't care. Verse 3. He says, why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? I heard this just a couple weeks ago. This is what they told me. Family told me that we have a male family member that has been, he has been molesting his little sweet daughters for years. He has been molesting his daughters for years, and apart from getting a gun and shooting him, we have exhausted every personal and legal action against him without any resolution. We are in anguish. Where is God? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look it wrong? That's what Habakkuk is saying. God's silence gives us the illusion that he doesn't hear, he is unfair, he doesn't care. And then that somehow he's unable. Verse 4, law is paralyzed. Wicked surround the righteous. The idea here, and, and, and maybe, maybe I'm not seeing things clearly. I think I've been around here long enough, 54 years on this planet Earth, lived right here in the valley. 54 years and it seems to me that we live in a day and time when it seems that villains maybe I could be wrong but it seems to me that villains, crooks, thieves, drug dealers and rapists have more rights than the victims it just seems crazy and and, and not only that it seems at times in our court of law it's no longer about right and wrong, justice, truth, but, but who has the most money and can hire the best lawyer? I mean, am I getting it wrong? No, I think that's what's happening, and I think that's what he's talking about here. God, are you unable? Law is paralyzed. Wicked surround the righteous. 
Part of the background here is that the history of Habakkuk is that Josiah, king of Judah, he was rummaging around in the temple, found the Torah, was so captivated by the Torah, first five books of the Bible, he began to read it to his people and a revival swept through the land. It was amazing how God began to transform the hearts and lives of the people. But Josiah goes out to war, gets killed, and guess what happens? The people go back to their wicked, evil injustice. And so Habakkuk is crying out to God, God, where are you in this? What are you doing? And, and it, seems as though, it seems as though Habakkuk has loads of doubts and questions. Would you agree with that? Just tons of doubts and questions. So here's what I think we can learn from this first section. Uh, Habakkuk's complaint that the Christian life, the Christian life is not the absence of doubts and questions. It's not the absence of doubts and questions, but it's the presence. It's the presence of God with those doubts and questions. That if you're waiting to have all your doubts and questions answered before you come to God, you're going to be waiting a long time. You'll never come to God. Okay? Because the essence of 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 the Christian life and coming to God is bringing our doubts and questions to him. And not only that, is beginning to see him more clearly. And that's what we see with, with Habakkuk. Is that not true? I mean, Habakkuk's not, you know, blogging about this to the world and saying, hey, you know. But he's, he's actually conversing with God. He's writing down this. And this is a conversation with God. He's telling God. He's telling God where he is. He's, he's revealing his heart to God. He's giving his doubts and his questions to God. I believe that's the essence of the Christian life, is that we, we take to him. It's not like you, you put your faith in Jesus and everything's wonderful from that point forward. It doesn't, it doesn't happen that way. That's not the Christian life. No, you come to him. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. God, I'm going through difficult times. And yet, it's knowing that he is with you. And you can bring to him your doubts and your questions. You share your heart with him. That's what he's teaching us here. See, doubts and questions aren't scary. They don't scare me. They shouldn't scare you. What's scary is Christians... Christians without doubts and questions. That's what's scary. What's scary is Christians without them. Because if you're without doubts and questions, it's because you're probably not thinking. You're not thinking very much about what's going on around us in this world today. You're not, you're not thinking too clearly. You're, maybe you're medicating yourself. Maybe you're hiding yourself. Maybe you're... I don't know what you're doing, but it's in the midst of our difficulties. It's not, this is what I love about Christianity. It's not a denial of reality, but it's in the midst of our reality. No matter how desperate it is, Christ meets us there. And we begin to have a greater reality because we know that he is for us, not against us. Even in the darkest days. See, that's what Habakkuk is doing. He's pouring his heart out to God. God, where are you? And when you do that, you will know God unlike ever before. I'm convinced of that. I think that's what it really teaches us because Habakkuk is a prophet. You know, a prophet. He's one of the 12 minor prophets. Old Testament. Minor not because he's any less than the major prophets, but minor because of what he writes is considerably less than the major prophets. But he's a prophet nonetheless, a powerful prophet of God. And being a prophet, prophets would hear from God and then speak to the people on behalf of God. And though he's an unbelievably godly man, he has doubts and questions. And he's teaching us that you've got to be fully in the dot. Otherwise, you won't know, grow, and accurately show God to the world around. What? Fully in the dot. What is that all about? This is what it's about. I learned this a number of years ago from a guy uh, by the name of Larry Crabb. And uh, he used an illustration similar to this. Uh, let's say you go to Arrowhead Mall this afternoon to go shopping. How many have been to Arrowhead Mall lately? Show of hands? You? Okay. 
So let's just say your friend says that there's a store there and they're having a really a great sell. And so they don't tell you where the store is. And so what do, you, what do you do? I know what I've done in the past is that I go in and I wander around for hours trying to find the store. And I've actually never found the store before. And so you can do that. You can kind of wander around. And maybe you just might happen upon the store. You might, might accidentally find the store. Or you can walk into one of the entrances. And usually when you get into the entrance, what is right there in front of you before you go any further into the store? There's a map, and on that map, there will be a red dot, and with that red dot, it will, it will say, you are, you are here. That's awesome. <laughs> so you don't have to wander and stumble around in the store trying to find that store. You can actually begin to chart your course. You are here. And so you've got to be fully in the dot, so then you can begin to look to see, okay, the store is up here, so I need to go from here, up here, take the escalator up there. Okay, and that's where the store is. See, I don't believe that you will be able to know God, grow in God, and appropriately show God to the world until you learn to be fully in the dot. Habakkuk is fully in the dot. He's fooling the dot. He knows exactly where he is. He's not medicating. He's not pretending. He's not doing this hyper-spiritual kind of nonsense that sometimes we do in Christianity, denying reality. No, he's right in touch with reality. He's in touch with what's going on around him and in his own life. And he's struggling and he pours his heart out to God. Now think about this. Think about this just for a minute. We, you almost hear me say this almost every week, and so it's important for you to understand this. Our concept of God determines the quality of our relationship with God. Is it not? But we've got to have that concept with God in relationship to where we are. We've got to apply who God is to the specifics of our lives. Every one of our problems, every one of our problems are due to the fact when we have negative Thoughts, negative feelings, negative behavior, it's due to the fact that we have lost track of who God is and who it is that walks through our day with us. We've, we've lost track of, of God. We're not, we're not facing the reality of our situation with the reality of who God is, that God is for us and not against us. There's a disconnect between what we say we believe And then our circumstances and how we're behaving in response to our circumstances. See, how I evaluate life's circumstances determines how I think, feel, and will respond to life's circumstances. But that evaluation of the reality of my circumstances must be packed full of God and all of who He is. That's being fully in the dot. Yes, life is pathetic. Life is terrible. Yes, I'm struggling. But God, you are bigger. You are here with me. You will never leave me or forsake me. God, you have an amazing love for me. You died on the cross for me. You have given me access to your throne room through your shed blood. And so that's how you begin to balance that. When you have the reality of that in your heart, man, you can face anything. You can face anything. That's why Jesus said, once again, to his disciples, 1633. John 1633, he said, In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Trouble, in the midst of trouble, I'm looking at my life. I got trouble, but he's bigger than my trouble, and he is with me and not against me. I can manage my trouble. See, you're not going to be able to, to grow. Uh, you're not going to, actually, you're not going to really uh, be known by God. And, and, and in fact, Here's, here's another thing, too, it just came to mind as I was thinking about this, is that you can only be loved to the point, to the degree that you are known. And if you're wearing a lot of masks and facades as it relates to your interaction with God and with others, they're only interacting with your mask, your facade. Not until you take the facade off and you begin to be honest about where you are and your struggle. Then you can be loved to that degree. But until then, you can't be loved. You can only be loved to the degree that you are known. But if you're playing games and you're not fully in the dot... You can't be known, and you can't grow, and then you're going to portray God in a, in a weird way into our world. So, I mean, it's, there's, ton of, there's a ton of stuff here that we could take this. I mean, this is what I'm learning about my own troubles, that troubles 
our opportunity, God, God has given me opportunity to drive my heart into the very nature and character of God to increase my joy and my hope in Him, even in the midst of dark times and difficult days. So difficulties in our life are opportunities for God to increase our joy in Him. That just kind of pooped me out, just what I was... It wore me out. I need to take an hour nap just after that first part of that book. I mean, man, this is, I believe this so strongly. The Lord has so spoken to me so vividly through this study of this book. And I, my heart for each and every one of you that you would hear, you would hear God. You hear God this morning. He's speaking to you. He loves you. He's pursuing you. And... We've got to be fully in the dot. We've got to just, and, and I think there's plenty of verses that talk about that. I, I put them down there, Psalm 51, 6. David says, you delight in truth and the inner being. 55, 22, it says, cast your burdens upon the Lord and he will sustain you. He will not allow the righteous to be shaken. Philippians 4, 6 through 7, that was a study we went through a few months back, you know, where we talked about Philippians. He says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything with prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Make your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. 1 Peter 5, 7. It talks about cast your cares upon Him because He he cares for you. He cares for you. He cares for you. He loves you. Here's God's response. So that's Habakkuk's complaint, and he he teaches us volumes there. But here's uh, God's response. God's silence is broken. And he says, I am doing a work. I am doing a work. And he says that in verse 5. I am uh, doing a work. And, um, and then my work will not make sense. He says that in verse 5. Once again, wonder and be astounded. You would not believe if told. And then the next one is that I will use a wicked nation to fulfill my purposes. So, so these, these statements by God give us three attributes, characteristics. This gives us the very nature and character of God that our hearts need to be drawn into when we're going through difficulties. And, and that is, God is perfect in love, God is infinite in wisdom, and God is completely, <clears throat> God is completely sovereign. Now, there's a bit of humor here. I don't know if you caught it with this dialogue between Habakkuk and God. But it's, it's quite interesting. Habakkuk is basically saying, God, God, what are you doing? God, I'm working. And if I told you, you wouldn't understand. Habakkuk, tell me. I want to know. God, okay, here it is. Habakkuk, I don't get it. God, I told you you wouldn't understand. That, that's kind of the dialogue that's going on here between God and Habakkuk. Here's three truths. You've heard me say this many times before that you need to understand in God's response. It's on your notes. God, in His love, desires what is best for you. In His wisdom, knows what is best for you. And in His sovereignty, will always do what is best for you, whether you can see it or not. That's a fact. That's what the Bible teaches us. And we often don't live in the reality of that. But if we did, if somehow our spirituality could mesh with our reality, it would make all the difference in the world. If our beliefs would be consistent with our behavior and what we're living out, it would change us. It would totally change us. Habakkuk 2, four it says, The righteous will live by faith. Second Corinthians 5.7 says, We live by faith and not by, what is it? Sight. We don't live by sight. We live by faith and not by sight. Hebrews 11.1 1 tells us what faith is. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. It also says that without faith it is impossible to please God. Whoever comes to Him must believe that He exists and that He is a rewarder of those that diligently seek Him. So we diligently seek Him in spite of the fact that everything in my life looks the total opposite of what He's saying He's doing. 
That's what it's saying, that you have the kind of faith that can look beyond the circumstances, beyond the people, beyond the things, whatever may be coming down in your life. Faith is being sure of what you hope for, certain of what you do not see. We live by faith and not by sight. The righteous will live by faith. Over and over again, the Bible tells us that. So there's a reality out there that we have to get a hold of and bring it down into what's going on in our life. Whether we can understand it or not, I think he's teaching us some really really powerful stuff here in God's response to Habakkuk. He's talking about, really, this is the doctrine of the providence of God. It's one of the many mysteries of God. And by the way, you need to know about the mysteries of God. The Christian life is not about conquering mystery, but celebrating it. We try to conquer it, and then we've got these polarized camps, the Arminian and then the, the Calvinism, and, and, and we try to figure out this whole idea of the sovereignty of God, so we overemphasize responsibility of man, and then we kind of tend to overemphasize the sovereignty of God. They're both. The Bible teaches both. And, we, and rather than we try to conquer that, that mystery, rather than to celebrate it, Celebrate the providence of God, that God's in control. And yes, we are also responsible men and women, and we will give an account of our lives before a holy, righteous God. The Bible makes that very clear. I don't know how that all works together, but I, that's, that's part of that mystery that I celebrate. I celebrate that God is way beyond my ability to fully comprehend and, and understand. And so I think that in that, I think he's giving us a couple things that we need to to learn. God is saying, don't you dare, don't you dare judge me by your puny perspective. That's what he's saying to Habakkuk. That's what he's saying to us. Don't you dare try to judge me based on your puny perspective. God is eternal. He's outside of time. He sees past, present, and future all at once. He sees everything all at once. He sees the future at once as if it's happening now. He sees the past as if it's happening now. He's outside of all of that. He knows all. He knows what's best for us. And I heard a a commentator actually put it this way. He said, if all of history was one hour, if we were to put all of history into one hour, your life would be a millisecond. A millisecond. So let's just say that I'm watching a one-hour TV program. You come in for a millisecond, see what's watching, what I'm watching. You walk out, the TV program is over. You come back in and try to tell me how the TV program was supposed to go. And try to tell me how it's all supposed to come down. You don't even have a clue of what you're talking about. And we want to boss God around? See, that's the idea is that God is sovereign. He's beyond us. When we understand that, there's that sense of awe and wonder. One commentator said that, and by the way, if you understand what, what's going down here, I was going to explain a little bit further, but he's, uh, God, God responds to him and says, hey, guess what? I'm raising up the Chaldeans, also known as the Babylonians. And yes, they're more wicked than, than Judah, but I'm going to bring them in, and they're going to wipe you guys out, and they're going to drag you off. And, but, but it's interesting. Now we can look back to see what God was up to in all of that. And one commentator put it this way. It's really phenomenal. As we look back on this big plan, master plan of God's, he says, if the Jews hadn't been taken into exile by the Chaldeans, they would have never spread throughout the Roman Empire in synagogues. And in almost every city of the ancient world, you had a synagogue with Jews and then also converted Gentile God-fearers. The early Christians that spread throughout the world shortly after Jesus were those who were not the pagans or the Jews, but the God-fearers who had been impacted by the Jews in the synagogues. If this succession of dominant world powers that were quite evil had never happened, then Christianity would have never spread throughout the world, thus making the world and the nations of the world less violent. So it's, it's amazing, and you study that. And I, that was just kind of a brief summary. He gets into it even that much more. He was just saying, he was just saying, God was in control of that. He had it was part of His master plan. By the way, his people, he had blessed them to be a blessing to the world, but they kind of held it to themselves. And so one of the ways that he was going to scatter them was that he's bringing in conquering nation to scatter them throughout the world. And he did, and God used that powerfully. And so we see, really, Christianity sweep through the land because of the history of Judah and what went down right here. I think he's also saying that... Not only God is saying, don't you dare judge me by your puny perspective, but also most of what I'm doing, you're not going to understand. 
I guess what he's saying. You're not going to understand it. You look upon the, the American landscape, you're not going to understand that. You're not going to understand what God is up to. You, you still need to trust him. You look at your own life, landscape, you're not going to understand what he's up to. You're not. That's why the Bible tells us in, in Proverbs 3, 5 and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean upon your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. And so I think he's, he's really telling us most... Most of what I'm doing, you're not going to understand any more than a four-year-old will understand their 30-year-old parent's explanation of the physiological and psychological values of proper nutrition, exercise, and rest. I mean, the distance between your mind and God's mind is infinite compared to the distance between a four-year-old and a 30-year-old. And you expect to understand everything God does? To say, it's got to make sense if I'm going to trust God, doesn't make sense, okay? Because you're not going to understand God. And so here's Habakkuk's next response, and it's very profound. It's, it's amazing. This is, this is where we wrap it up. It's just verses 12 through 17, Habakkuk's second complaint. And this is what we learn about Habakkuk. Unconditional faithful wrestling with God recognizes that there is, here's the first thought, it recognizes something, that there is something worse than disappointment with God, that there is something worse than disappointment with God. Look what he says in verse 12. And I believe that he's, uh, you know, he's, he's, certainly, he's certainly struggling here, but, but he's also, he's, he's talking about the very nature and character of God. He says, are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? And this is really remarkable. It's a rhetorical question. He's not asking for information. And rhetorical questions are really punishing statements. But it's almost as if he's saying, in the context of this nature and character of God, he's saying, you call that an answer? You're going to have the Chaldeans who are more wicked than, than us come into our land and deal with our wickedness and evil by conquering us? I thought you knew what you were doing. Are you not from everlasting? Habakkuk is in anguish. I heard another commentator say it would be almost kind of like this. God's saying, okay, Christians, you've been praying for revival in your land, in the USA. Well, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to have Iran and North Korea do some talks, and they're going to come over here and take over this land. That's what I thought, well, that would... I mean, immediately I'm thinking, yeah, no way. But that's what he's doing with Judah. He's bringing wicked, evil nations to come in and take them over and then scatter them. Oh, by the way, Americans... I blessed you so that you would be a blessing, but you built your own little castles and your own little fortresses and you've kind of, kind of poured it all on yourself and you're kind of going down. Your trajectory spiritually is just going down. I'll tell you what, what's interesting when you study eschatology that the USA is not even mentioned anywhere as we head towards the end. And I don't know what that's about. I really don't. Maybe we get conquered. Maybe we get so full of pride that God says, hey, because I love you, I'm going to let you get conquered because I want to increase your joy. Not only that, I want to spread you throughout the world so that you can make an impact in this world like I asked you to do from the very beginning. And that's what he does with the nation of Israel. By the way, we're going to be going through the study of the book of Acts. And in, in, in the book of Acts, the, this group of people that are just on fire for Jesus, they want to just kind of stay in their little holy huddle in Jerusalem. So guess what God does? Persecution time. They are persecuted, and they are scattered throughout the world. And guess what they do? They turn the world upside down. If I do well when all is well, this does nothing to the world around me, but if I do well when all else is falling and failing, then indeed is my life a witness to the world. Regardless of what goes down in my life, I can live my life for His glory and still find unbelievable satisfaction in that. That's what we can learn. So here's what Habakkuk is saying. Unconditional faithful wrestling, that's what he's doing with God, recognizing, recognizes that there's something worse than disappointment with God. And here it is. Here it is. It's big. Habakkuk's in anguish. There's no doubt about it. But he says, and that is disappointment without God. Disappointment without God. Verse 12, he says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One, O Rock, on one hand, Habakkuk is challenging God, but on the other hand, he doesn't even give it a thought to walk away from God. He's challenging God, and yet at the same time, he's not even going to walk away from God. Why would I do that? That's crazy. And, and this is really, 
This is really unusual when you consider on one hand the the religious, the hyper-religious who say, hey, don't question God. It's that legalistic appeasing of God or he'll wipe you out. You know, you need to be afraid of God, so you shouldn't be that vulnerable and that open to God. And that's that one extreme. And then you've got this, this other extreme. On the, on the other extreme, on the other hand, you've got the irreligious who say, how can God bring good out of this? And it's this liberal reliance on human reason that rejects God altogether. So the one is based on being afraid of God. That one's based on just this pride that you know better than God. And Habakkuk does neither. In essence, he's saying, if I can't figure life out with you, certainly I'll never be able to figure life out without you. That's what he's saying. Yeah, life is tough, and I'm trying to figure this all out, but there's no way that I would push you off. There's no way. There's no way. And you know what that that comes from? That comes from grace, understanding grace. That you, that you know that you are so loved and your, your relationship with God is not built on, on your performance but on, on God's performance. And so therefore you can, you can open your heart to him. You can be honest at that deep level because you know God's not going to cut and run on you. But also, also it's based on, on the fact that he values you and loves you so much. Where would you go? You've never been more loved. Listen to me. No one... No one will ever understand you more than God. No one will ever understand you more than Jesus. And so you can bring your needs, your heart, your doubts and questions to him. But listen to this. No one will ever and has ever loved you more. Where else would you go? See, that's what he's saying. It's like, are you kidding? I've got you. You're the holy one. God, I love you. You love me. Yes, I'm struggling, but I've got you. I've got you. I'm allowing this to drive my heart into your very nature and character. What that is, that idea of grace, is that I feel secure enough to be honest because I know you won't leave me. And I feel significant enough that that why would I ever want to leave you? So where do you get that kind of grace? Here it is. Years later, the Apostle Paul in Acts 13.41 he quotes Habakkuk one five, speaking of Jesus. He says, Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if you were told. And, and so God told Habakkuk he would bring salvation through violence and injustice. And so Paul is saying this principle finds its ultimate supreme expression in Jesus on the cross. Imagine what the disciples were feeling at the foot of the cross. All their hopes and dreams, gone. Yet three days later, the greatest event in all of history, because Jesus, because Jesus took our ultimate evil upon the cross, you and I can endure our lesser evils for His sake, knowing that He may seem that He has abandoned you, but He hasn't, and is working in your behalf to ultimately bring redemption out of suffering. That's what he does. The cross tells us that. There's a guy, William Cooper, and he found Christ in an asylum. And he tried to commit suicide a number of times. Really quite an interesting guy. We studied him in one of our Dead Theologian Society studies. And, but he wrote, this, he's, he wrote amazing uh, different hymns. And in spite of the anguish and the difficulties, when you look at his past, you can see why he had just such dark, deep depression in his life. And yet in the midst of that, he embraced this full nature and character of God. And there's a, there's a hymn that I want us to, to read, and then we're going to close. It's, the, the title of the hymn is God Moves in, in a Mysterious Way. And uh, this is how it goes. God moves in a mysterious way, His wonders to perform. He plants His footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense. 
but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. God is loving, wise, and in control of your life. And listen to me. He's loving, wise, and in control. And you're not going to be able to make heads or tails out of it. And he has a reason for everything that he's doing in your life. Let me say that again. He has a reason for what you're going through. He has a reason for what you're going through. You might not be able to fully understand it this side of eternity, but the Bible does tell us that when we come face to face with him, according to 1 Corinthians 13, 12, not until we come face to face with the one who would rather die than to live all eternity without us. When we come face to face with him, we will know as we are fully known. But until then, God is telling us this morning, trust me, seek me, pursue me. Look to me in the midst of your difficulty. And though there is mourning, there is difficulty and crying and weeping at night, there will be joy in the morning. He can take our darkness and turn it into light. It's written in blood right here. He tells us that. Stand with me for closing prayer. Next week, we're going to talk about waiting. How do, you, how do you persevere through that? I'm going to spend five weeks on this. This is the first one. Four to go. Let's pray. God, uh, we are so thankful that uh, you are with us. You will never leave us. And God, though it may get difficult in our lives, in fact, we are all headed towards difficult days and difficult times, and yet... God, you told us, you you didn't promise us painless or problem-free lives, but you did promise us your presence, your peace, and your power in the midst of that. So, God, we pray that you would show us that in our lives so that we can put on display your glory to this lost and dying world. Because, God, you are most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in you. So help us to learn to be more and more satisfied in you, regardless of what goes down in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. God bless you.